I invite you to join me in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, Ezekiel, Daniel, some additional prophets, and then we hit Jonah. If you weren't able to be with us last week, we began the book of Jonah, studying the book of Jonah last week. We really just set the table. We got him on the boat, but that's pretty much it. We notice that Jonah is God's special work project in this account. And we asked ourselves if it's possible that as improbable as it might seem, might we also be in need of heart change? Even if we've known God for a long time, even if we've had a a great privilege of ministry for God like Jonah, is that possible? This morning, the text in front of us is going to lead us to consider a particular danger in the Christian life. It is a danger that can handicap us big time in terms of our personal witness for Jesus. And not only can it handicap us in terms of our personal witness for Jesus, it can actually cause us to work against God. What is that great danger? It's the same danger that Jonah finds himself in. It is the danger of forgetting that we too are objects of God's mercy. What is this gathering today? Who are these people who are assembled here? who got up early and made all kinds of sacrifices and prepared and came to be in this room or to be present online. What kind of a gathering is this? Is this a gathering of the prudent and the wise and the good and the better than everyone else? Is that who we are? Absolutely not. We are not the wise, the prudent, the special, the better. This is a gathering of objects of mercy. And we're just here to say thank you. That's it. Thank you to the one who had mercy on even ones such as us. Mercy is God's delivering love. Mercy is God's rescuing love. Mercy is God's love manifesting itself by withholding disaster and rescuing from disaster. And so many 
ugly attitudes and actions by Christians, including me and especially me. Arise because we have forgotten that we too are objects of God's mercy. Just that one basic thing. How prominent is that thought in your consciousness as you go about your day and interact with other people? That one basic thought, I am an object of mercy. It should color everything that we do and every word that we say. We are shown in this passage in front of us in full color what our lives look like when we forget that we are objects of mercy. That's going to be on full display today. How ugly are we when we forget that we too are objects of mercy? Also, we're going to be shown what our lives look like when we Remember that we are objects of God's mercy. Jonah is the negative example. His attitudes and his actions show us what it looks like when we forget our own need for mercy. The pagan sailors, incredibly, are the positive example. They show us what our lives look like when we remember our great need of God's mercy. And then at the conclusion of the account, at the very end of chapter 1, we have the dramatic and overwhelming and towering and life-shaping and God-glorifying demonstration and foreshadowing of how God's mercy comes to us. That's all here in the remainder of Jonah chapter 1, and that's where we're headed today. What do we look like when we forget our need for mercy? What do we look like when we remember our need for mercy? And just how does God's mercy come to us anyway? By what means? Let's read verses 4 through 16, and then we'll get into it, okay? Let's stand in honor of God and his word. This is Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Jonah's on the ship headed away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew 
And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Oh God, we don't deserve to be here. We do not deserve to be here. We deserve to be at the bottom of the sea because our sin against you has been great. Who are we to get to stand here and sing holy words and read holy words and have hearts that are turned toward you? Who, who are we that you should do these things for us? And yet here we are, the objects of your mercy. Let not this account fall on deaf ears and dead hearts. We pray that the same energy that you invested, the same Holy Spirit power that you invested to regenerate and save us, you would invest again to revive us and sanctify us. That we would respond to mercy in measure with with which it has been given. And we pray for Jesus' sake and in his holy name, amen. Please be seated. When we forget, when we forget that, oh yeah, I'm an object of mercy also. When we forget our own need for mercy, we look, like, look a lot like Jonah looks on this voyage. We look like him. He displays two traits that we also display whenever we forget about our own need for God's mercy. And those two traits are complacency and hypocrisy. 
when we forget our own need for mercy, we look a lot like Jonah looks in this passage. We display the same two traits that he displays, complacency and hypocrisy. Let's take complacency first. Complacency is a good word for Jonah's attitude. Uh, He's sleeping. According to verse 5, he is fast asleep. The ship is in peril. Notice that it's about to break up. That's how severe the storm is. Everyone's going to die. And Jonah is taking a nap. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? Just stop and think for a moment. When we think about the, uh, the unbelievable things that we see recorded in the book of Jonah, before you think about how unbelievable it is that he could survive inside a fish for three days, think about how unbelievable it is that he could be fast asleep in a storm so severe that the ship is going to break up. How could that happen? Well, if you think that's amazing, how about this? If eternal separation from God in hell is the reality toward which every unbeliever is moving, unless God intervenes mercifully, if that unbeliever will spend all of eternity there, and I've been told to go and tell people how they might avoid that horrible eternity. How could it possibly be that I've told so few people? How complacent do I have to be to have told so few people about God's mercy? Why am I napping through that storm? Well, okay, in trying to do a little bit of self-diagnosis and think about, Matt, why are you that way? Why do you care so little? I think I've arrived at this. If I have not really taken time to appreciate the danger that I was in apart from Jesus, it's very hard for me to consider and be affected by the danger that others are in apart from Jesus. It's pretty hard to care too much about the danger that other people are in if I really haven't processed and understood just how hopeless my own situation was apart from Jesus. I think that is one of the hardest things for us to get a handle on and to pass on to our children and to come to grips with is our condition Apart from Jesus, because for so many of us, Jesus is all we've ever known. And we don't even maybe remember coming to him and don't remember a time in our life when we 
were apart from him in any real sense and have not appreciated in almost any measure the the wrath that was upon us. How hopeless we would be without God's mercy and how frightful the storm of his wrath really is. In other words, if I'm to say it as simply as possible, it's hard for us to appreciate what we have escaped. It's really hard. It's hard for us to appreciate the storm that we were in apart from the Lord Jesus. For many of us. However, I would say that this text that we are in this morning is one of the best places to learn about it and to begin to appreciate it more. This text right here in Jonah 1, this story, because the gospel is all here. Sin and wrath. Mercy and rescue. Sinner and Savior, all right here in Jonah 1. If someone asks, what is our true condition apart from Christ? What is that like? What does that mean? What, what is this hopeless condition apart from Christ? We could say, well, because of one man's sin, now we're all in trouble. God's wrath is upon all of us because we're associated with that one man, Adam. We have all become complicit in the rebellion because of our association with this one man in our own sin. Now we're all in this boat, in this storm together, just like those sailors are in that boat with Jonah. By virtue of association with him, they're right there in the storm of God's wrath. And that ship is not going to hold. And even through our best efforts of trying to save ourselves in the midst of the storm by throwing off all the cargo to try to lighten the ship, maybe we can do it that way. Well, maybe if we row really hard and try as hard as we can, put all of our human effort behind it, maybe we can save ourselves from God's wrath. Besides all of our best efforts. Nothing works and we are lost and we're sunk unless this is the last hope. And this is why the captain goes down to wake up Jonah. And that's why you see the sailors doing what they're doing and the captain doing what they're doing. Because the only hope at this point is if God decides to show mercy. That's it. That is our Prognosis. I'm saying that what they experienced physically on the ship, we experience, experience now spiritually. It's the same prognosis. Everyone is on that ship of sin. One man's sin has imperiled them all. And there they are in the storm of God's wrath. And here we are in the storm of God's wrath. This is our condition apart 
from mercy. We are imperiled. We are hopeless. We are crying out. All of our strengths and efforts do not avail to get us out of that storm. So did you know, Christian, and did you know, especially young people, that's what your life is like apart from Jesus. You are on a ship that won't hold, and your only hope is that God will have mercy on you. Work hard to understand the nature of your condition away from the presence of the Lord. That's the terminology here. This is what life is like away from the presence of the Lord. And we are headed down into the depths. What I'm saying is that if we have an impoverished view of our sin and God's wrath, leads to a very complacent life with little concern for other people, little regard for the mercy we've received, little care that others receive that same mercy. We see that complacent attitude in Jonah. We see it in ourselves. Everyone's going to die because of him. And his response is to take a nap. Okay, we see complacency. This is what our lives look like when we do not appreciate that we are objects of God's mercy. The other thing we see in Jonah is hypocrisy. Complacency is a good word for his um, attitude. Hypocrisy is a good word for his actions. Jonah speaks for the first time in verse 9. Um, Everyone else has spoken already, except for Jonah. God has spoken. Uh, The captain of the ship has spoken. The sailors have spoken. And now finally in verse 9, we have Jonah speaking, and he's basically answering this question. If we combine all four of those questions of the sailors into one, basically they're asking this, who are you? And this is his response. Look at what he says, verse 9. I would love for you to see the actual words, to believe that these words came out of his mouth. This is his response. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Those are his words. That's what he says. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Do his actions show that he fears the Lord? Can a person really say with a straight face that they fear the Lord while they're doing the opposite of what the Lord told them to do? That's what we call hypocrisy. Your mouth says one thing and your actions say something else. And you know as well as I that this is one of the greatest indictments of the church. We have to talk about hypocrisy. 
could probably talk about it every week or at least once a month. This whole reality of actions not matching our confession. In the spring of 1999, I got an email. So as I was thinking back through this, I thought, okay, I guess we did have email in 1999. It was an email from a teammate. I was a senior in college in 1999, spring, excuse me, fall of 99. One of my teammates sent me a message, and I wish I still had it. It's lost or it's deleted somewhere out there. I don't have it anymore. So I don't have the email message anymore, but I remember where I was when I read it, and I remember how it made me feel. The message was about my treatment of a fellow teammate. So I had a teammate of mine writing to me addressing my treatment of a fellow teammate. And the teammate that wrote to me, his name was Mark. He wanted to talk to me about how I was treating James. James was younger, um, he didn't have it all together. He did, he did things that um, he did things that were immoral. He did things that annoyed people. Um, the, the, gist of, the gist of it is, I made sure that he knew he was on the outside. And that he was a bad guy, and that I was a good guy, and that he needed to be more like me. And I did that in lots of different ways, um, some ways very subtle, some ways not so subtle, just to keep reminding him and everybody else that he didn't measure up and that he should be more like me. My teammate Mark had observed this, and so he got to the point where he decided to send me a message, and the message went something like this. Matt, I know that James doesn't have it all together. But he is a person, and he is a teammate. And we need to be his friend, and we need to include him, and we need to bring him along. And he needs to feel like he's part of the team. And then he said this. Words to this effect. Your self-righteous attitude and actions are achieving nothing but turning other people off to your religion. And to you. You claim to be a Christian, but where's the evidence? That was the substance of the message, and he was exactly right. 
my attitudes and my actions were not in line with my confession. I was working at cross purposes with God. I would have claimed to be worshiping and serving the gracious and compassionate God of heaven, but the attitudes and the actions of an unbeliever, my teammate that wrote to me, was not a believer. His attitudes and actions were more in line with the fear of God than mine were. Mark was the one being kind. Mark was the one looking out for the vulnerable and the outsider. He was more righteous than me. I was rebuked by someone who didn't know God. And he looked more like a God-fearer than me. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. All of these sailors, they each have their own God. We learn that in verse 5. They don't know the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by their actions, all through the account, they show that they are the ones who actually do fear God. Not Jonah. He says he does, but he doesn't. And when we do not value personal mercy received, when we don't see ourselves as objects of mercy, and I didn't, that was my problem. When we don't make God's mercy toward me personally, the foundation of our life, we will Make the foundation of our life something else. And the foundation, that something else foundation will be merit. It'll be self-righteousness. That's what we will build our life on, on how good I am. And when personal merit is the foundation, the whole building will be off and ugly and counterproductive, and we will draw no one to Christ when all we can offer is our own filthy self-righteousness. I've, I've lived it, and I still battle it. So I just want to ask you, is your self-image built on your goodness? Or is it built on God's mercy toward you? Do you look down on others? Or do you look up to God? Are you high or are you low? Are you the judge of everyone or are you a debtor to mercy? That's the identity that I'm commending to you today, that I am a debtor to mercy. The more we forget mercy, the uglier our lives get. And when we forget it, our lives are filled with complacency and hypocrisy, and we drive people away from the God that we claim to worship. Okay? That's the negative example. That's all pretty bleak. Thankfully, thankfully, the pagan sailors are here to show us the good. They are the ray of sunshine in this passage. The people who don't know God. They are here to provide the positive example 
And the main thing we want to say about these unnamed sailors is that they represent the right response to God and to others. Okay? So two things, we had two things about Jonah. If his life is characterized by complacency and hypocrisy in this account, the sailors, what we see from them are these twin attributes of urgency and responsibility. Those are the characteristics that they display. What we see from them is both urgency and responsibility. That's what it looks like when mercy has become the foundation of our lives. There will be urgency and there will be responsibility. First of all, there's an urgency to do God's will. That's what we see in verses 6 through 11. There's an urgency to do God's will. Okay, think, think back to the beginning. Think about Jonah's perspective on God's will. God's will comes to him right, right away. God says, this is what I want you to do. Think about Jonah's perspective on that will. In that moment, Jonah's perspective is, well, God's will is optional. I can take it or I can leave it. And he decides to leave it. God's will is optional. The consequences for disobedience are not that bad. I can sleep through them. If I die, I die. If everybody else dies, they die. That's his, his perspective on God's will. God's will is optional. Now, contrast that with the sailor's view of God's will. Their view is we have got to find God's will now and do it. They are calling out to God's, verse 5. They're casting lots to find God's will. We've got to find out what it is so we can do it, so this fear can calm down. No, they don't know the true God, but they're demonstrating a right view of God and a right response to God. And it's such a rebuke to Jonah. Look at their response when they find out that Jonah is fleeing the God that made the sea. Verse 10. When they find out that Jonah is fleeing the God that made the sea. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? Now, think about it. This must have been the, the thought, are you kidding me? You're fleeing the God that made the sea on the sea. What is wrong with you? Don't you know how big God is and how powerful he is? Look around you. You think you can trifle with God? This God made the sea and you think you can flee him on that same sea? He is to be obeyed. That's the right view of God. Their view of God is so high and they don't even know him. And Jonah's view is so low. And of course, it's not only a rebuke to Jonah, it's a rebuke to us too. What, what things are urgent to you? So you here sitting in this room or listening online, what's urgent? Is, is God's will on that 
list of things that are urgent to you, his commands, have they risen to the level of urgent? That I have to do it. A recognition of mercy needed leads to urgency in doing his will. Of course it does. If he's the only one that could show us mercy and get us out of this, of course we have to do what he says. The first thing we see from them is urgency to do God's will. That's really good. That's what our lives look like when we remember God's mercy toward us, that we don't view his command or his will as optional. We see urgency. The other thing that we see from them is responsibility, responsibility for the welfare of others. That's verses 13 and 14. Urgency to do God's will. Responsibility for the welfare of others. Now, if that last rebuke of Jonah was a verbal rebuke, this next rebuke that he gets is really a two-by-four up the side of his head. And it's going to be a two-by-four upside of our head as well. Think about Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh. The people of Nineveh. Those 120,000 souls in Nineveh proper, it's probably how many people were inside the actual wall of the city. Those 120,000 people in Nineveh, they can perish. That's okay with me. Feels no compassion at all. No responsibility to take the message entrusted to him and tell them that their evil has come up before God and that that's a big problem and that repentance is necessary. Jonah is content to just let them bear the punishment for their own sin before God. He doesn't care about those 120,000 people. Now, in contrast, think about what the sailors display. They're so worried about Jonah, one man. They cannot bear to take the life of one. They can't bear to throw him in and risk offending God over one person. They say to him, what shall we do? Jonah says, This is going to be the answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. But they can't. They won't. They, Verse 13 says they rode hard to get back to dry land. I wouldn't have done that. Jonah's guilty. It's his God. He says, throw me in. It'll be over. I would have thrown him in. And they get in the, get the oars, and they're rowing hard. To save one man, and when that didn't work, they called out to the Lord, verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They did all of that for one man, one negligent man who had put them all in danger, who they had to have been so angry with. 
and had told them himself to throw him in, and they did everything they could to save him. And they felt responsible for his welfare before God, and they didn't even know the Lord. What a rebuke. What an incredible rebuke. When Jonah first received that message from the Lord, his immediate response should have been urgency and responsibility. Urgency to obey. I've got to do this. It's God that told me. Responsibility. There's all these people that are going to die and they don't even know it and I'm the one who's been told to go. Those responses did not characterize him. Urgency and responsibility are the two things that should mark the church, but do they? Do we view his command as urgent or optional? Do we feel a sense of responsibility for the lives of others all around us? Do we feel a sense of responsibility for their welfare that even approaches the level of responsibility that the sailors felt for Jonah? The sailors, they show us what our lives will look like when we remember our own need of mercy. After all, why are they doing what they're doing? It's not because they like Jonah. They're not doing what they're doing because they like him. They're doing what they're doing because they know they need mercy. They've recognized their own need. So there it is. Jonah shows us what our lives look like when we forget our own need for mercy. Pretty ugly. Sailors show us what our lives look like when we remember our own need. Urgency. Responsibility. Now, here's the last thing. What is the most important thing to remember when we think about God's mercy toward me? Okay, right here at the end, very personal. The exhortation to you today has been make God's mercy toward you the foundation of your life and let it affect all of your interactions, okay? That's been the exhortation. Remember the mercy of God toward you. Now, when I say that, what is the thing that we are to focus on regarding that mercy? As that thought sits in our heart and in our minds, what are we to focus on regarding that mercy? The answer to that question is here too. It's in verse 15. The most important thing to remember is that Someone was sacrificed in order that mercy might be shown to me. Someone was sacrificed in order that mercy might be shown to me. Look at verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. The storm abated when one man was sacrificed to God. How does God's mercy, his delivering love, come to these hopeless, imperiled sailors? 
How does God's mercy come to them? It comes to them when the one man was sacrificed, cast into the teeth of God's wrath. How does God's mercy, his delivering love, come to hopeless, imperiled sinners like you and me? It comes because one man is sacrificed, cast into the teeth of God's wrath. God's wrath rages against the world because of sin, and we are all on that boat. But one man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was not guilty, took on the weight of that sin, became sin, and we hurled him into that storm of God's wrath. That's what happened on the cross. Humanity hurled the one man, the sinless man who became sin. We cast him into the teeth of God's wrath as a sacrifice to God. And because of that sacrifice, all who trust in it will be saved. Look at the words of verse 11. Look at the question. What shall we do to you, Jonah, so that the sea may quiet down for us? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Notice the you and the us. What shall happen to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? There it is. There's the gospel. Something happened to him. To Jesus so that the sea could quiet down for us. The sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth has satisfied God's wrath and the storm is over. If you have trusted in Christ. I am pleading with you, brothers and sisters, to remember that we are people for whom someone died so that mercy could be shown to us. How evil are we? Blood of infinite value, blood of the Son of God was the necessary ransom for our sin. No lesser sacrifice would have availed to cover our sin. No lesser payment would have covered it. That's how evil we are, that only blood of infinite value could cover it. And blood of infinite value has covered it. I think it's so interesting that in these events, Jonah pictures both the first Adam and the second Adam. He's both He's the the first Adam by whom everyone is now in big trouble. 
by his disobedience, he has imperiled everybody. And he's the second Adam. By that one sacrifice, everyone may be saved. He's both. And he will sink down, and three days later, he's going to come up again, and he's going to preach, and everyone who believes what he says will be saved. And Jesus went down, and three days later, he came forth, and everyone who believes what he says will be saved. This gospel is beautiful, and it forms beautiful and humble people when we remember our need for mercy and the man by whom mercy came. He's the man that said, pick me up. Raise me up. Do this to me. The sea will quiet down for you. Well, when the sailors got that mercy, according to verse 16... They feared God exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice. And they made vows. What kind of a life have you offered to God now that you've obtained mercy? You who know God, what have you offered him after the storm, after the death? The book of Jonah, uncomfortable places and uncomfortable questions. And I'm right there with you. Thank you, Father, for the testimony of the word. And it's the very fact that you're not done with us. The reality that there's time for repentance. Thank you for the reality that we don't have to be perfect because Jesus has been perfect in our place. And yet we don't want to live with this constant rebuke from the pagan sailors who after they received mercy, after they knew they were on the receiving end, they responded with great fear and great sacrifice and vowing vows. They made promises. And what has our response been? to the end of the storm by the means of the one man who had no guilt of his own but bore ours anyway and was cast in the teeth of your wrath to experience hell in our place that we might know mercy and new life. Let us receive the rebuke. Let us respond with repentance because we love you. Amen.